Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives Podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig and I'm joined today by our Chief Economist Eric Crampton. Hi Eric. Good morning. You had the pleasure of being in the lockup yesterday before the budget. You went through all the government's details and data. Can you tell us, were there any positive surprises in the government's budget? The best thing we saw in the, in the budget was, well, as a surprise, was the hypothecation of revenue that the government gets when it auctions ETS credits. We've argued for a carbon dividend. They aren't- What does that mean, hypothecation? So hypothecation is when you take the money that comes from one revenue source and you put it to only one purpose instead of putting it into the general ledger. So previously the government was taking all of the money that it got at ETS auction, throwing it into the general kitty, and then it's part of government general revenues. This brings the option of creating a carbon dividend, which we've talked about before, right? Uh, and we've had a few columns about where you take the money that's collected from the ETS and just rebate it back to people so that the system becomes more politically durable and it helps people to cover the cost that they're incurring as, ca as carbon prices increase. Hopefully that winds up being what they do with it instead of, well, there, there are bad things that could wind up doing with it, but at least now it's on the table. And the most negative surprise? Well, I was a little disappointed to see that we're looking at uh, European-style unemployment insurance programs. We don't know the details yet. Minister Robertson very strongly emphasized that he's been urged by Business New Zealand to take up this approach. I'm not quite sure how strong that urging's actually been, but we'll leave that to one side. I don't know, when I was a kid in Canada, we had unemployment insurance and it was compulsory, it was run through the government. And the general deal, at least in the 80s, was if you work for 10 weeks, you're eligible for 42 weeks of POGI. And that's what they called it in Canada. POGI. Uh, POGI, yes, unemployment insurance. Uh, so the government would pay you. But well, the end result of that wound up being that places that had uh, strong unemployment problems, well, Newfoundland would put in make work programs to cover people for 10 weeks and then they'd be eligible for 42 weeks of support from the federal government and you keep recycling that. You'd hear stories about that if somebody had gone more than 10 weeks on a job and didn't quit their job so that somebody else could get their 10 weeks, they're kind of like the, the black sheep in the community because you need to share those jobs around so that people can be eligible for POGI. It, led to some pretty bad outcomes and it discouraged people from moving to places where there's higher employment. Hopefully we don't wind up in that kind of a spot because well, we've already got mains benefits and job seeker benefits. We've already got potential for income protection insurance. Uh, you can buy that privately now through any number of insurers. Why the state needs to be doing this is a bit up in the air. It will represent a pretty substantial increase in the tax take. Yeah, talk, and someone's got to pay for it. Well, that exactly, would probably right? be a levy on income tax. It, I would expect that they do something like the ACC levy. Mm -hmm. uh, quite how that winds up, it's hard to say yet. Whether they, they'll always be tempted to put some of the burden on the employer and some on the employee. Actually, as economists, we know that it doesn't matter how you split that up between employer and employee, and the burden ends up depending on relative elasticities. We don't need to get into that now. And it sounded really generous, up to 80%, oh, yeah. including covering illness. Well, it's expanding ACC to everything really, right? So that would kind of break the insurance model. With ACC, at least on the employer account, you can risk rate the things. So if an employer has a lot of workplace risks and has a lot of bad history, well, they can charge a higher premium there. What are you going to do on employment insurance, right? You have to find some way of charging a premium that reflects risk if you want this to actually be insurance. It's going to be a tricky one. So 
might turn us into Canada, it might actually turn us into Belgium or other European welfare states. They've been operating under such models for a long time, and the outcomes are typically higher unemployment, higher employment costs. So this seems to be one of the biggest additions, actually, in this budget that hardly anyone has been talking about. Well, it's not been talked about much yet because it's just a foreshadowing of that it's going to be coming, right? So it sounds like the government is negotiating with Business New Zealand and the CTU, which... uh, feels more like a Swedish corporatist kind of model than anything else um, to put together the structure of the thing and then they'll tell us what they want to do and there'll be a consultation round on it. So cost will be coming from it. We'll get a chance to have a look at what uh, these fine folks come up with as a proposal and comment on it. So we had at least one positive surprise with climate change revenue. We had one negative surprise with um, the social security insurance scheme. But more generally, how realistic do you think are the assumptions behind the budget? It's pretty rosy when it comes to growth and productivity and interest rates and inflation. But how realistic are these assumptions, really? Well, they're figuring 2.4% inflation for next year. We're already seeing higher inflation rates than that coming out of the U.S., Uh, That will mean higher inflation rates in our tradables. So even if things stay muted here on non-tradables, tradable inflation will start pulling it up here. There's a bit of risk then there. It's weird that we would be getting 2.4% inflation, but only 0.9% continued house price inflation. We'll see how that pans out. If house price inflation ends up being higher than the Reserve Bank will because they ha- they're now supposed to be looking at house prices. They might move interest rates faster than expected. Then government's interest costs might end up changing. All of that is a bit risky. It also seems a bit heroic to assume that a rise in benefits will correspond with a declining number of people who will be on benefits. As the economy continues to improve and the effects of COVID wash out, you'd naturally expect people to be cycling out from benefits and back into work. And I'm not trying to make the bash bludgers kind of argument around, well, people just want to sit around and be on benefit. It's more just at the margin work effort to go and find a job is a little bit lower when benefits are a little bit higher. And that does have effects in the aggregate. So there are some risks there. I wonder whether, well, we might wind up in a spot in a couple of years where there's going to be big tax hikes that are going to be needed if economic growth doesn't pan out the way that they're expecting. We're already baking in uh, some structural deficits. Now, they've not been able to use the same kind of normal numbers that we see on these. So what do I mean? A structural deficit is the deficit that's there once you knock out all of the effects of the temporary stuff that's going on. So COVID knocked that out. It's more, what does long-term tax take look like and what are the government's long-term obligations that they can't do much about, like superannuation and locked-in education spending, the locked-in effects of demographic change and benefit rates. We are in a structural deficit even through 2025, looking at about 1% GDP, which is pretty substantial for New Zealand. Getting out of that will be important. We're locking in a lot more spending while there's still a lot more uncertainty around what uh, revenues will end up looking like. So there's risk there as well. When we go through the government's um, fiscal risks at the back, well, they're, they're always a little bit worrying. And there are some big potential ones yet in there. So they've got projections around what they might need to spend for, well, okay, actually, I'll say that again. The government has budgeted budgeted a few hundred million dollars to set up the structures for the water reforms. They've got no money budgeted yet for the looming infrastructure deficit in water. So one of the 
proposed reasons for the three water infrastructure is that councils haven't been spending enough on maintaining their water pipes, so they want to bring it into these big central government things. Well, there's the projections that we're seeing on these are upwards of $100 billion, right? So there are looming costs yet to come there. Right, and since you mentioned COVID a few times already, um, there was one heroic assumption in the budget um, that from 1st January 2022, everything will go back to normal at the border. Yeah, so... That's not our rate so far. That's been the... Well, they've not said quite to normal. They've said it's substantial easing. So they're expecting some restrictions to still be in place. But the numbers that came out, half-year fiscal update last year, they were projecting everything to go back to normal from uh, 1 January 2022. Or at least, uh, like, international students can come back again. That sort of thing starts being re-enabled. Well, the Australian budget had theirs, I think, for middle of next year. And since we're in a bubble with Australia, you'd kind of think well, it's yeah. similar here. Yeah, the vaccine rollout here there are risks in whether we'll be able to get that done by the end of the year it seems so it's the biggest risk to the budget then that the government doesn't actually manage its vaccine rollout well it's that and not enabling more travel at the border right so they've put in a bit over 300 million dollars to strengthen the miq system uh, there's a mix of capital expenditure and operational expenditure because there's some capex in there i was hoping well Maybe they're doing something that'll let us get more people traveling, right? To let business travel come through again, to let skilled migrants who are here bring their families over. Because otherwise, well, we're one, it's a humanitarian disaster that we're keeping these people separated from their families. But two, it's also a severe risk that skilled, talented people will just be leaving because they're fed up with not being able to see their families anymore. Like, I can't imagine I'd still be here if I were in that spot. But... When I asked Mr. Robertson about that, I said, no, there's no increased capacity in there. So the combination of slow vaccine rollout and nothing serious at the border to increase capacity, that's a disaster. Hmm. In his column in the Herald today, Matthew Hooten has an interesting point. He says, in the government's first term, they announced a lot of policies, but um, the policies weren't ready by the time they were given funding. So we had um, Kiwi Build and the Billion Trees program and a whole range of other policies like mental health and then a year later they found that actually yeah, the money was allocated but it wasn't used because the policy rollout wasn't there. Houghton claims in his column the government has learned the lesson and now they are actually not announcing anything that requires them to do anything on the executive side. They rather like to give money to some external organizations and if it doesn't work well it's their problem obviously. Did you see much of that in the budget? Well the biggest item in the budget is the benefit increase and that only requires flipping some dials in the computer system. That's right? quite so that's easy to achieve. That one's pretty easy. Yeah. Um, we saw the, the school lunch program is now up uh, north of half a billion dollars, which seems a little high. I remember when this was announced last year, it was a trial rollout in three regions. They're going to be assessing the effects, whether it is improving schooling outcomes. Like I was a bit skeptical about whether it'd pan out, but it seemed, well, if they want to try it, um, Fair enough. They might want to account for that uh, pile of private providers are already out there delivering school lunches, and at least some of them were saying that there wasn't any particular need that was still left after we take into account the meals that were already provided by charitable organizations. But leave that to one side. Pilot trial, you could assess outcomes, right? So when I had a look yesterday, I couldn't find any of the evaluation work that's been done yet. They'd pitch they were going to be evaluating it yeah last year maybe it's been completed but i've not seen it i've not found the reports yet and now it's up to half a billion dollars in spending so it's a bit of a worry yep half a billion without any evaluation and without any clear policy and initially i think it was also meant to be 
kind of make work scheme during COVID. Well, that was really frustrating, right? So the school lunch one, I don't think was meant to be a make work during COVID. This was being touted before COVID even came in. Mm -hmm. I think it was more that the prime minister just had an idea that she wanted to do something really nice for kids. And she thought this was something really nice for kids and didn't really want to think too hard about the NGOs that were already delivering this. The one that did, did kind of bug me was, well, remember the Shovel Ready Projects program, right? So this was billions of dollars of spend that was going out during during COVID when the worry was that we're going to be having mass unemployment, that we're going to have piles of unemployed people in construction in particular, and worries that unemployment in construction would mean a flight to Australia and a permanent loss of capabilities. So they set a whole pile of projects and they'd had applications for lots more than they actually spent spent on, but rigor in selecting projects was a bit lacking and necessarily so, right? Because they were trying to pick things in a hurry where an objective was, well, just get people employed in a hurry, get money out the door in a hurry if you can, and less on normal kinds of cost-benefit assessment. Well, the world's changed, right? We don't have mass unemployment. Unemployment rates are great. Minister Robertson was touting those, and deservedly so, at the budget lockup. But that changed circumstance should mean a change in government priorities, right? We're not in a spot now where we're risking losing construction workers because there's no work for them. We're in a spot instead where we're pulling construction workers from projects in the private sector that would pass cost-benefit assessment because somebody's putting their money on it or pull, bidding construction workers away from critical infrastructure programs that are going to be needed to advance the housing agenda into things that never really had any decent cost-benefit assessment. Mm -hmm. Some of these should have been reassessed. When I asked about it, Mr. Minister Robertson said, well, a lot of these have now had their contracts locked in, so there's nothing we can do about it. Well, contracts come with break fees, right? He, there are ways of getting around these, and they should have started being reassessed as the unemployment numbers were coming in in October last year, that the world wasn't falling over, things were looking a lot better, and actually we don't need make-work schemes. Well, instead, we're just still going ahead with them. I want to finish um, with a bit of a personal question. I think you know Ruth Richardson reasonably well. There were repeated references to her and her mother of all budgets, 1991, in Robertson's speech yesterday. How did that make you feel? And did you think that was fair or even necessary? Well, they seem to have a bit of a grudge about the 1991 reforms, don't they? Um, that budget was necessary. The government was going to collapse for want of money. They had to get the numbers in line, and then it set New Zealand on pace for strong economic growth through the 1990s. Now, you can argue the toss about exactly how much cuts were necessary, but as a package, the thing worked. Uh, it seemed a bit gratuitous, but it was um, probably a, a necessary bone to throw back to their base. It, I, I don't like it, but uh, playing politics is always part of budgets. And it was a very political budget. They... I'm not sure that there are any that aren't really. Okay. <laughs> I think on that note, we'll leave it here. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, and thank you all for listening.